Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. The recently published book, Seducing Augustine, Bodies, Desires, Confessions, takes on the works of a philosopher and theologian. St. Augustine of Hippo. The three authors, Professor Virginia Burris, Carmen McKendrick, and Mark Jordan, interpret Augustine's autobiography, Confessions, from a seductive and passionate point of view. Today, I'm joined by two of the three authors. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so let's start with Virginia. Augustine went from being sexually tempted to married to celibate. So can you sum up St. Augustine's life for us? Who was he and what's important about him? Well, probably what's most important about him is the enormous body of literature that he left behind and the influence that it exerted on subsequent tradition. Um, his biographer noted that if anybody ever claimed to have read all of Augustine's works, you should not believe them. Um, but the other thing that's remarkable is that we know so much about his life. Um, the life itself wasn't necessarily all that unusual uh, for late Roman antiquity. Augustine was born in the middle of the fourth century in a small town in North Africa, current uh, Algeria, and um, was in some ways the, the course that his life took was typical of a kind of upward social mobility, geographical mobility, or religious pluralism that was typical of the day. Um, uh, to lay out his life in detail would take more time than we have, but just to say briefly, um, he went from Tagast, where he was born, uh, to study in nearby Madara and eventually made his way to the big city, which was Carthage. Um, that's where he had uh, a number of significant and powerful experiences, including uh, an initial conversion to philosophy um, and uh, enormous excitement about that, uh, subsequent uh, adherence to a religious movement known as Manichaeism, um, which he was to remain connected with for quite a few years. Uh, it's also where he formed his relationship um, with the woman that he uh, went on to live with for 13 years and with whom he had a son. Um, in, in Carthage, also, he um, began his career as a teacher of rhetoric, and that eventually took him to Rome uh, and finally uh, to an appointment at the imperial court in Milan as professor of rhetoric in Milan. Um, and uh, there he m made yet another conversion um, and uh, became uh, an adherent of a form of Platonizing and ascetic Christianity that he encountered in Milan. Um, during that period, he had, uh, you referred to his, his going from being um, tempted by sexual pleasures to marriage. It's really more accurate to say he was tempted by marriage. He didn't, in fact, marry. Um, but he did uh, become engaged um, with the help of uh, or the intervention of his mother uh, to a young woman. Uh, she was too young to be married. Um, and during, during the period that he was awaiting his marriage, um, his conversion took place. And to him, that was a conversion to uh, a life of, of celibacy, of, of sexual renunciation. Um, and that also was a conversion that... that caused him to withdraw from his career as a rhetorician. And so that's usually seen as the big turning point in his life, the, the big conversion. Um, and that sends him back to North Africa, um, where he uh, 
forms a monastic community. He's very quickly ordained uh, to the priesthood in Hippo and soon thereafter becomes bishop of that city and uh, is over 30 years in the role of bishop in, in North Africa. So while his career starts off with what we would expect of this kind of upward mobility, um, it loops around in a, pers- a perhaps unexpected way um, as he ends uh, or spends this this uh, last long portion of, of life as the bishop of a of a relatively unimportant town, um, and uh, and many people would see his confessions as, among other things, being a way of coming to terms with that somewhat unexpected turn of his life. Okay, and I'd like to throw this to Carmen. Carmen, why is confessions considered by some such a significant piece of literature? Well, there are several different <clears throat> reasons, as with most significant works of literature. Um, one is just that it's spectacularly well written. Um, I sometimes suggest to my students that they should steal passages from it and put them in love letters um, because his avowals of love for God are just absolutely stunning. But it's also been important because it occurs at an interesting intersection of genres. It's often called the first autobiography, but of course if you read it you realize that he doesn't precisely recount his life and some of the episodes he talks about are a lot like other people's lives, and he's probably weaving in anecdotes from their lives as well. So it's fun to try to figure out in terms of genre. That's drawn literary critics. But that multiplicity of genres also means that literary theorists read it for the beauty of the language, the narrative structure, which was very influential. Philosophers read it for things like the discussion of time, which is very philosophically rich. And theologians read it because of his um, considerations of the human relation to God. Cultural historians are interested in it because of the depictions of his life, like those that Virginia just talked about. So the fact that it's really hard to pin down in terms of genre has actually been a big factor in its influence, and that all of those different genres are so beautifully written has helped to sustain interest from all those different groups as well. And Virginia, how did you three professors get together to write Seducing Augustine? And how did you come up with looking at it from as an erotic point of view? Well, I mean, in some ways, Carmen and Mark and I had been in conversation through our scholarship for quite a long time around a shared obsession, really, with, on the one hand, Christian traditions, and on the other hand, eroticism. And so you that, guys knew each other before? <clears throat> we knew each other, through, um, again, through each other's work, um, first and, and foremost. and um, But there was a, a conference... Um, gosh, probably about five years ago uh, at Drew University, where I teach, uh, where we all three were present, and that's the first time we we got into conversation, um, and much of our conversation there was around engaging these questions of desire uh, and uh, Augustine's confessions. And so much so that um, we were invited by someone else attending that conference to come to Berkeley. Uh, Daniel Boyarin invited us to come to Berkeley to give a series of talks on Augustine and Desire. And that was so much fun, you know, that we thought, you know, we, we really should do this. We should, we should make a book out of this. Um, and, and partly just the excitement was that we found ourselves um, reading the text in such similar ways, and yet ways that were so different from what we felt we were seeing uh, in scholarship uh, or in more popular readings of the Confessions elsewhere. So there was a kind of 
synergy um, and also frankly frankly by that point really good friendship Virginia on your <clears throat> first uh, encounter with Carmen um, was it like wow I read your book like how was your first meeting well, Carmen and I have known each other so long, it's almost hard <laughs> to remember. Um, but we, uh, as academics do, we, we met at a conference. Um, so, yeah, it is a matter. You meet someone, you've been very moved by their work, um, and you discover that there is a kind of spark of intellectual friendship, which, by the way, is something that Augustine would totally have understood, <laughs> um, his own rich sense of 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 intellectual friendship uh, comes through very strongly in Confessions. And Carmen, did you have the same experience with Virginia when you first met? I did, actually. Um, I Hers was one of my favorite papers at that conference, and we started... Was it on Augustine? No, it wasn't. Um, and we started corresponding by email pretty quickly thereafter. I didn't actually meet Mark until the Drew Conference that Virginia mm -hmm. mentioned. So that, and, too, was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah. And that was a paper on, that That paper was the really the kind of uh, seed of this book because it was a paper uh, about reading Augustine's Confessions in terms of seduction. Okay, and unfortunately, Mark couldn't be here with us today, uh, but he did send well wishes. <laughs> This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon discussing the book Seducing Augustine with authors and professors Virginia Burris and Carmen McKendrick. So um, this is for, I'm going to throw this out to either either of you two. Uh, in your book, you say St. Augustine has been accused of single-handedly ruining sex for the Western world. Now, how was this conclusion drawn? Who, who would like to start? This is Carmen McKendrick. We should probably emphasize that it wasn't our conclusion. Okay. <laughs> we actually think he made sex more interesting and complicated. But it's a fairly popular one, so we thought that it was important to address it. And it's partly his own fault, <laughs> both for the reason of doctrines that he develops and espouses and because of the very style of his writing. The doctrine that's probably most important in that regard is original sin. And original sin is based on the story of the temptation by the snake in Eden. And a lot of people interpret the idea of original sin as sexual. But for Augustine, it's fairly clear <laughs> one always has to be careful, that the first sin is disobedience. It's not that the people realize they're naked that makes them sinful, but that they have gone against the will of God. But the interpretation of original sin as sexual and Augustine's emphasis on original sin have come together to make people interpret him as anti-sexual. The other factor, which is more his own fault, is that his writing is full of tensions. That's one of the things that made it so interesting to us. There's always a pull in different directions. And one of the most important pulls is between celebrating the beauty of the world that God has created and, on the other hand, not being so seduced by that world that you forget about the creator of it. And it's very hard to read tensions. It's hard to read paradoxes and hold them both in your mind and let it be pulled in different directions. So when people read him, very often they only read one side mm -hmm. of that tension. They just draw their own conclusion. Right, or they draw half of his conclusion. Mm -hmm. And the easier, more obvious half is, oh, he thinks we mustn't give in to physical or worldly temptations. And would that be because he himself struggled with sexual temptation? 
That's probably one reason that he perceives it so strongly, because he clearly felt it passionately. Often when you read condemnations of sexual desire, you roll your eyes and think this person has never felt a sexual desire. That's easy. <laughs> With Augustine, he so clearly had, and that certainly makes the reading um, stronger and probably his comments stronger. But I think that he sees that double pull as there for anyone, because he talks in Book 10 about other worldly temptations, even the temptation to possess things that are visually beautiful is a problem. And book 10 from Confessions, from confessions by St. Augustine. Yes. And we have to um, note that you both pronounce it differently. So I'm not saying it wrong. It's just <laughs> it is pronounced differently. And Virginia, you pronounce it? Augustine. And you pronounce it? Augustine. Augustine. Okay, so we're not wrong either way. We're going to just go back and forth with this pronunciation. So let's discuss Augustine's youthful sexual transgressions. Um, you mentioned this in your book, uh, Seducing Augustine. In your interpretation, how was he affected by his youthful indiscretions? This is Virginia. Uh, it's interesting uh, how often people come away from the confessions with the impression that Augustine was particularly promiscuous, particularly transgressive uh, as a young man. Um, when, when you go back to the confessions and read it carefully, you realize that he never once actually reports on anything. What he does is gestures in a kind of general way towards the excessiveness of his own desires. Um, In your book, I think you call it teasing? Teasing that, I mean, that is something that we read, actually, as part of the seductive strategy of his work, um, is that there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of provocation, teasing, sort of offering a glimpse of something, but never really showing it fully. Um, and that's part of what really draws the reader in. But what's interesting is it also often misleads the reader into imagining things that Augustine never says. Frequently, my students will write vividly of his sexual encounters <laughs> in their papers. <laughs> and I say, where? Right. You know, so it's, it opens up a space for the reader's fantasy to kind of fill in the gaps. Um, okay, then so, I'm guilty of that. Yeah, in fact, if you look, again, you know, I mentioned that he uh, formed this relationship that endured for 13 years uh, with a woman whose name we never learn, but uh, who, who he begins, uh, uh, picks up with in Carthage, um, and she moves with him to, uh, to Milan eventually. Um, he describes himself as having been faithful to her for that entire time. That is scarcely the portrait. Um, uh, in antiquity, certainly men were not uh, considered to need to be restricted to one sexual partner. They didn't um, have to be monogamous. Not, not at all. And he, he quite explicitly describes himself um, as, uh, as in a, you know, a monogamous relationship. It didn't have, happen to be one that was legally a marriage, um, uh, which was in that period often the case, especially if uh, there was a difference in social class, mm -hmm. um, that people might um, partner without being married. Um, and that's and it was often, acceptable at that time? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's often speculated that that is the reason that Augustine um, and his partner were, that she was of a lower social class, and so that you, and as it were, you reserved the possibility of marrying up or marrying in a more respectable social class. We don't know that, um, but that's one of the, the speculations. But so really, on the you know, he teases with all of this um, kind of reference to his excessive desires um, and with really, as, as Carmen pointed out, you know, this just fabulous, um, voluptuous rhetoric. But when you, when you read the text carefully, we see a man who, if anything, um, was, was unusually uh, committed to one relationship. Um, and when he writes 
writes about the ending of that relationship, which took place when he became engaged to be married, um, he writes of incredible pain of the separation. He he uh, compares it to an amputation mm. and says that when um, he's really evoking here um, the the Genesis. Um, two story where uh, where the woman is is pulled out of the first mm-hmm. man's side, right? Um, and but also where that text talks about the the male and female cleaving to one another mm-hmm. um, in marriage. That's how he. That's the language he's evoking. It's as if she was joined to him by the side, cleaving to his side, and now she's been ripped apart. And he says, uh, "My soul uh, was bleeding." Uh, and it and it was like a wound that wouldn't heal. So it's very you know very powerful language in relationship to that. So why did he leave woman. her? <clears throat> that's again that's part of when he became engaged. And the way he represents it is the temptation for him was a temptation to be married, um, and that sort of that the worldly status that came with that, the respectability, the convenience. Um, po- quite possibly the the uh, marrying into someone well a family that was wealthier was what tempted him mm-hmm. um, and as part of that arrangement uh, he had to separate uh, from the woman he had lived with Augustine's friends make some important impacts on his life and his decisions uh, one friends for example his death was r- really devastating to Augustine uh, one's friend's conversion albeit a little flawed um, led Augustine to his own spiritual transformation. So share those stories and your theory behind them. I guess we can ask Carmen that one. Um, actually, I'd like to defer that one to Virginia. If that's that's okay. fine. It's more her part of the text. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> well, um, a well-known scholar has remarked that Augustine seems never to be alone. Um, in his own uh, self-descriptions. And certainly a reader of the Confessions uh, gets the impression of a man for whom friendship was incredibly important, as as I already mentioned. Um, And in antiquity, friendship pretty much uh, assumes male friendship um, because it assumes equality, a relationship between equals. Um, Now, he himself deviates from that somewhat in his theology of marriage because he does describe the marriage of a man and a woman as friendship. Um, But that's stranger than the notion which is prevalent in the Confessions that that friendship is friendship between um, men. And so there's a, a very strong what we might call homosociality or, uh, or, or a sort of sublimated homoeroticism that really um, pervades his descriptions of these friendships. And particularly the friend whose name, like his, his female partner, this friend, we, we never learn the name of this friend. This is another way in which the de- text is sometimes kind of elusive and teasing and seductive, is the most important relationships um, that he describes, the two most important relationships. Um, we, we, uh, the name of, this, the, of the person is withheld. Why do you um, think he does that? <clears throat> well, it seems, um, certainly if we look at how readers have responded down uh, the ages, it seems to create a kind of, of a sense of privacy, if not secrecy, that really incites curiosity. I mean, people frequently talk about, you know, this woman was so important to him, but he he never tells us her name. I mean, feminists talk about that, you know, in a tone of outrage, um, uh, frequently of this this woman who, who must rena- remain nameless, like so many women whose names are erased from history. Um, and that's a point well taken, yet we should also note that the same thing is true 
of this male friend uh, who is which is the the of all of his male friendships the one that is um, is depicted in the most intensely passionate terms because clearly um, they are two of the most important people in his life right so I think that's why our reading emphasizes not so much the sense of an erasure of the female in the text as this is part of what again of what makes his um, his text seductive teasing um, it arouses our curiosity. It makes us want to know more. It makes us feel as if we're being drawn into a realm of privacy and secrecy. I think that the description of this one one friendship, male friendship, becomes powerful partly simply because we don't we can't even say his name. We have to constantly say, you know, well the the, the friend that doesn't have a name but that is so. Um, and maybe that adds <clears throat> to what we were talking about earlier with your students and with me, that um, you tend to create this idea that he never said, but you see it yourself because you have to fill in the blanks yourself. Right, mm -hmm. right. It really draws out our own fantasy, mm -hmm. I think. But the story, as he tells it, involves the, um, he'd known this young man since childhood. They came from the same town, um, but hadn't really uh, connected earlier. It's when Augustine has, has gone off and studied in Carthage and comes back home and uh, and he describes their friendship as a delight sweeter than any other in this my life. Sadly, uh, as he as he tells the story, um, within a very short period of time, his his friend uh, becomes ill with a fever. He thinks that he's recovered, and the fever becomes back, and the friend dies. And an entire what are referred to as books, we would think of them as chapters uh, of the confessions. Almost the entire chapter is taken over with. Um, his, his expressions of grief and his reflections on why we grieve so deeply. Um, and so the death of the friend becomes um, the beginning of a very famous meditation on, um, grief. on, how, on grief and what grief reveals about our desire to love transient, mortal, created things and people as if they were not mm -hmm. transient. Our desire to demand that someone never leave us, never change, never abandon us um, when that is, uh, is an entirely unrealistic uh, At any desire. point, does he blame God? Um, on the contrary, what he does is depicts God as the only possible object of our full mm. desires. Only God is big enough for Augustine's desire. I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV, speaking with the authors of Seducing Augustine, a collective interpretation of the Confessions of St. Augustine. Stay with us. More Fordham Conversations is ahead. A couple of years ago, when the economy took a turn for the worse, a lot of people found themselves out of work. Today, the unemployment numbers are a bit rosier. But while some people are saying the worst of the recession is over, the jobless have an entirely different story to tell. Hi, I'm George Borarki. Coming up on this morning's Cityscape, a special Strike Accord edition focusing on the unemployed. That Cityscape this morning at 7.30, right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Robin Shannon here with two of the three authors of Seducing Augustine, Professor Virginia Burris and Professor Carmen McKendrick. So I'd like to uh, throw this question again at both you, one or both can answer. Uh, you discuss three areas of obedience in St. Augustine's life in your book, uh, Seducing Augustine, the active and the passive wills, humility and resistance. So how did these areas relate to Augustine and what did you conclude from your uh, analysis and your research? Okay, this is Carmen. Um, 
I suppose the first thing to note is that obedience seems like a really weird fit with seduction. So you might well wonder (laughs) what that's doing in the book at all. One of the things that all three of us liked in reading Augustine's Confessions was the fact that he's so often angry or frustrated or anguished or mourning, but not only does he describe all of those negative affects really beautifully in that same gorgeous language that he uses for happier emotions, but you start to suspect pretty quickly that he's kind of enjoying them. Ah. <laughs> so. Oh, that's interesting take on it. So he's enjoying the misery, so to speak? Yes. <laughs> and in particular, he's enjoying the sort of tension in it, being drawn towards it and away from it. So that pleasure intention is actually, we think, central to the seductiveness of the book. And one of the biggest tensions for him is his desire for God, as Virginia just described, and his desire to obey God, but at the same time, his desire for things that he sees as being disobedient to God, his desire to go on having other sexual partners after his concubine is sent away, for instance. So the struggle with obedience is one of the most vivid examples of those tense double desires. I guess I can throw this one to Carmen. Um, What did you learn about St. Augustine or your interpretation of St. Augustine that surprised you? Well, I think the thing that probably most surprised all of us as we were writing was that not everyone thought this already. (laughs) I think... Certainly for me, I won't try to speak too much for my co-authors, as soon as I read the Confessions, I thought it was an incredibly seductive and even sexy text. And yet a lot of people read it and actually find parts of it dull, or at least think that Augustine is anti-sensual in it. So the surprise was probably not so much in what we found there, but that I it was actually something relatively novel to find. It was also a very pleasant surprise to find how well and easily we work together. Co-writing can be a misery. (laughs) But I really think we all had a good time with this. What areas did you find that you three totally disagreed on or differed on? Were there any? I think that our... Our disciplinary approaches are different, Um, so Virginia will occasionally gently suggest to me that a little history might ground my philosophy somewhat, for instance. Um, But I don't think that there were points, certainly not strong points, of theoretical disagreement, so Mm -hmm. it was really more a matter of emphasis and uh, the ways in which we were trained to approach texts. And just tweaking that a little. Yes. And in some ways, I would say, um, this is Virginia, I would say that we we kept each other honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the Confessions as a text that sustains a lot of tension and complexity. Um, and so if one of us um, might be tending towards a more kind of, you, and you can tell this uh, probably already that this might be my tendency, towards a more kind of simply celebratory mm-hmm. uh, reading of the text, um, another would kind of pull back uh, with uh, a reminder that um, that those tensions remain uh, and that and that there's a lot of um, of ambivalence uh, of, of of potential destructiveness or kind of loss that um, that is kind of written into the text uh, as well um, so I, th- I think I think having 
having the three of us working together enabled us in some way to do justice to the complexity of the text that, that simply would have been impossible with just one voice mm-hmm. operating. Uh, and finally, this question again is for either of you. What would you like a reader of Seducing Augustine to come away with once they finish the book? Who would like to go first? Uh, this is Carmen. We want them to want to read the Confessions. <laughs> to really want to read the Confessions, Um, and maybe to go to the Confessions looking for something a little different than might otherwise have been the case. I think almost necessarily people tend to go to that book wanting the story of Augustine's life, some of which he gives us very straightforwardly and some of which he very much withholds from us to our lasting irritation. So maybe reading or going to the text, not so much for that story, although enjoying that as well, as for the ways in which the text is performed and these fascinating theoretical and narrative elements that emerge in it. I'd like to thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. My thanks to authors and professors Virginia Burris, Carmen McKendrick, and Mark Jordan, who unfortunately had a prior engagement and couldn't be here today. Seducing Augustine, Bodies, Desires, Confessions is out now from Fordham Press. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Next week, Mary Wilson will be your host. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. I dreamed I saw St. Augustine alive Most men